I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to LiveWire, everybody. My name is Luke Burbank. I am your host. We have a great episode in store for you this week, coming to you from the Triple Door in Seattle, Washington, with some amazing guests. Geraldine DeRoyter, she's the person behind the Everywhereist blog. Also comedian Matteo Lane, who I'm going to be honest with you, makes a lot of enemies during his extremely hilarious stand-up comedy set. And we have Makini Howell, a vegan chef who gets why people sometimes can be a little annoyed with vegans. And we have music from the incredible band Valley Maker. The theme that we picked for the show this week was Going Rogue, in part because of something our show's announcer, Elena Passarello, had written for the Paris Review. I wanted to talk to her about that right at the top of the show. So let's pick things up on stage at the Triple Door in Seattle. Take a listen. You wrote this piece about two flamingos that went rogue. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I had a column there about just famous animals in history. So one of the major, I would say, categories of animal story is animals that have gone rogue. Animals that have escaped from something. And my favorite escaped animal story is the one that ended up in the Paris Review. And it's the story of these two flamingos, HDNT and 492. So Classic uh, flamingo names. Right. So um, I believe 492 was your, not garden variety, but the kind of, the kind of flamingo that you often see. Right, like that kind of pink, very kind of salmon-colored flamingo. Like opening credits of Miami Vice. Exactly, right. On, seen on front lawns everywhere. I think that's a, called an old world flamingo. Okay. Uh, landed after, it was kind of old. It was like a decade old, but the, it got shipped to a zoo in, I believe, Kansas? Like Wichita or Wichita, something? Wichita, Kansas, yeah. Um, and they forgot to clip its wings, and so it was like, peace out. And it just flew away, and... Then a little bit later, somebody saw it on a river in Wisconsin, and they knew who it was because uh, 492 is in this yellow tag on one of its legs, and then it disappeared, and they were like, well, Flamingo, you had a good run. 
Fast forward to the summertime uh, in the Gulf Coast of Texas. Lo and behold, that flamingo had made it all the way down. Wow. To the Gulf Coast of Texas. To the third coast. To the third coast. That's right. Uh, And then I think a year later, maybe a little bit longer, it's not crazy to see a flamingo down there. They're considered vagrants. Like bird watchers don't consider them native to that kind of super bird-heavy part of the country. But just a little bit, maybe a few years later, 492 showed up with a flamingo friend. Another flamingo that had gone rogue? Yes, another flamingo that had gone rogue with a yellow tag on its leg that said HDNT. And this flamingo is a very rare bird. It's this hot pink flamingo, kind of like a Lisa Frank binder, if you remember (laughs) it, right? We try to keep the references extremely topical. Yeah. Mid-90s school supply, if we can, is I think the sweet spot for the show. It's true. So these two flamingos, like, both escaped from their respective homes. And one just, in Wichita, Kansas, and one in the Yucatan in Mexico. And they just, like, met up in Texas. Mm-hmm. In a, in a uh, waterway by an oil refinery in Texas. And How long did they live together there? Years and years and years and years. And there are all these photographs of them doing these kind of synchronized swimming routines. They flew together. They ate together. They never left each other's sides. Yeah. Isn't that a great story? This is a, this is a Disney film. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I and the many people in this room right now who know me will attest to this. My default setting is to go rogue. You... <laughs> Like, I have an instinctive thing to violate the rules or to not uh, observe the rules of any situation. You are the Wichita Flamingo. I like to think of myself as the Wichita Flamingo of public radio. The Wichita Flamingo. That's a beautiful Glenn Campbell song. And what I'm learning now is that there are some rules that are actually kind of make sense. And so I'm starting to actually follow the rules a little bit. And I have to say, it's, it's making my life easier, but I feel like I'm also losing some of my inner spark. <laughs> my inner bad boy flamingo Your is going bad, away. I bet it's always going to be there. There's what about you? Be, uh, if I was a flamingo, would I go rogue? Would you stay in your enclosure or would you make a break for it? I'd be like a Hogan's Heroes flamingo. What know? does that even mean? Like, I'd still be in there, but I'd be like scrapping it up like in the zoo. Like, I'd be like, like running the hot dog cart or like I'd put together like like a flamingo versus polar bear rugby game. That never ends well. <laughs> I don't think I would go rogue. I think I would, I would, I would work within the system to make things weird. <laughs> well, the good news is we do have somebody just off stage who actually knows all about going rogue. Oh, it's great. the perfect time to bring them out. She had to do that when she was laid off from her job. She decided to try to make a living blogging. The result was the very popular Everywhereist blog, She's also the author of All Over the Place, Adventures in Travel, True Love, and Petty Theft. Please welcome Geraldine DeReuter to Livewire. Hello, Geraldine. Welcome to Livewire. Hi. Um, Tell me how your blog got started. So I, I didn't want to start a blog at all, but I kept sending my husband these really long emails, and he was like, please stop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I kept doing it, and he goes, I, I feel like other people would want to read this. And I... <laughs> um, and he said, you know, I think, I think you should start a blog. You were a copywriter? I was. I was a copywriter, um, but I was, I was laid off, uh, started the blog, didn't know what I wanted it to be about. 
Um, and my husband was like, well, maybe it should be about travel because everything good in my life has come as a suggestion from my husband. I would do nothing productive on my own. So um, I started the blog when I was, I was just trying to kill time, trying to find my next job. Um, and I had been traveling a little bit with my husband because he had been working so much and I hadn't been seeing a lot of him. Um, and I thought, well, I'm just gonna do this for a couple weeks, turned into a couple months, turned into a couple years, uh, the blog started taking off, and then it became its own thing. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty big hit. It was like a Time Magazine cited it as one of like the best blogs of a particular year. When did you realize this is actually becoming kind of a big thing? Um, literally when the Time Magazine article came out, so it was about two years, it was about two years in, um, and I, every day I would wake up in this sort of existential, awful, kind of late 20s on weed, where you're like, what am I doing with my life? Uh, and so every morning I would wake up and I would, I would just pull my hair and I'd, I'd tell my husband, I don't know what I'm doing. And he would say, keep writing. So then the, the, the blog starts to sort of take off and yeah. you're traveling and writing about it. And then you write this book, this memoir, um, yeah. which I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about something that's actually currently... Uh, pretty recently written on your blog. And it is, I would say, kind of a pushback against the Marie Kondo-ification <laughs> of America. Yes. It's basically making the case for keeping things that spark rage. Yeah. <laughs> Can you please explain? Yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, so here's the thing. All of my bitterness and anger is hard-earned, and I don't want to let go of it. Um, but also... I, I think that we're, you know, we're all complicated people and putting this binary on us of like, only keep it if it sparks joy. Well, first of all, I would have no possessions at all. I would have thrown out my tax returns and all of my bills and so many things, like my family members. So you, yeah. have, to, so you have to keep things that, have, that create a complicated emotional response. I well, think. it sounds like you're key, we're talking to Geraldine DeRoyter, by the way, here on Livewire Radio. Um, you, it sounds like you have these wool socks. That's what you're yes, writing about. Yep. You got them from a very uh, kind of... Garbage human. We unlikable <laughs> ex uh, romantic interest of yours. I, don't, I would say boyfriend, but it sounds like he had a girlfriend at the time who was not you. <laughs> that is... I mean, when we started dating, it was just me, I thought. Um, this was 23 years ago, so I'm now amused by it, but like the 15-year-old inside of me is still angry and I have to honor her. Um, so you still have these wool socks that he gave you. I do. And you keep them. I do. Why? So I think it's just a good reminder of kind of how far you've come. It really is, yeah. So sometimes objects can be a reminder of where you used to be. Yeah. And having them is, is a good, it, 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 in its own weird way, is sparking joy for you, but by way of how much you don't like the person who gave them to you. I mean, it's sparking schadenfreude. Right. So, um, and I also think, you know, sometimes it's just these moments that happen to us, even if they're awful, they still happen to us. You know, my mother and my father were married for eight years, four of, eight years on paper, four in which they were actually together. Um, I'm sure that my mother's wedding album did not spark joy for her. I'm really glad she didn't throw it away. 
We have to take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRI. We are talking to writer and blogger Geraldine DeRoyter. Her memoir, All Over the Place, Adventures in Travel, True Love, and Petty Theft, is out now. We will be right back from the Triple Door in Seattle. Stay with us. Livewire is supported, in part, by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up. Which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection. And I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff. And I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Fully sent me this thing. And it is just a dream. Uh, it's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI, everyone. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. We are at the Triple Door in Seattle, Washington. Talking about going rogue this week, we have... Geraldine DeRoyter here, blogger and uh, author. People say, like, say, blogger and author, like those are not, like blogging is not writing. I mean, that's, that's the debate, right? Does, does it feel different? Because now you have a blog and a book. Do you feel like a blogger is different than a writer? Or? I, I think that there is a legitimacy. It shouldn't be. Like, I worked and wrote way, I worked way harder. I shouldn't say this, sorry. I worked way harder on the blog than I did on my book. Um, Because I kept, I've had the blog for 10 years, right? And the book, you finish a book in a few years. And yeah, and I I spent hours and hours on the blog. Um, But until the book came out, I think it gave a certain legitimacy that for some reason I didn't feel. It definitely impressed my husband's grandparents way more than just having a blog. That's really the measure. It is. I want, I mean, like, what Pauline and Seymour think is far more important than anyone else. You, like, uh, you, you're sort of, you know, semi-joking, but also I can tell, I can look in your eyes, see the truth to that. Half of this audience are people that I am related to, or my actual neighbors, Rich and Linda, are here. Like, and that is way more where my brain is than the, I don't know, quarter of a million people that were here this on the radio. Oh, yeah. It's what, what did mom think? What did dad think? What did the... Well, my parents are not invited. <laughs> Um, you had your, like, this is the great fear if you're somebody who's on Twitter a lot and it's a big part of kind of what you do for your job stuff. You had your Twitter account hacked over a cinnamon roll recipe. (laughs) Um, I think, I mean, I think it was, it was a result of that. So, uh, about a year ago, Mario Batali sent out an apology letter for allegations of sexual harassment, which actually turned out to be allegations of assault, um, did anyone see this or hear about this? At the end of it, there was a recipe for cinnamon rolls. Yeah. Um, and so I saw this recipe and I thought, no one in their right mind is 
going to make this garbage sexual harassment apology recipe. So I made it. Huh. And, um, and I, I wrote about it, and the post went viral. Martha Stewart retweeted it. Pete Wells from the New York Times retweeted it. Um, it was a career highlight. I, I basically was walking around in my PJs like, yeah, how do you like me now? Um, <laughs> It was, it was great. It was, it was career-defining. And then my Twitter account got hacked, and I curled up into a ball. That is a real, like, terrifying moment, though, in this day and age. It's, it's petrifying because so much, especially if you're a writer, like, and I've talked about this experience before, if you're trying to sell a book, the first question you're asked when you walk into a publisher's office is, what is your Twitter following? That is literally one of the first questions you are asked. That sounds terrible for literature. <laughs> But I mean, is that really a big way that they decide who gets to write books now? I think that for a lot of publishers, uh, their view is, can you sell this book? What mechanism do you have to sell this book? What is your platform to sell it? Who are you going to sell it to? Who are your followers? Um, and you need to prove to them that you can do that. Um, we're talking to Geraldine DeRoyter. Uh, we're at the Triple Door in Seattle this week on Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. Um, you have this job, Geraldine, that you've really created for yourself. You must get a lot of people asking you, like, how do I get this job? How do I develop this for myself? Because it seems <laughs> like the perfect job. You oh, yeah. get to write about whatever is going on in your life, traveling or what have you. I mean, honestly, the one thing that I always tell people is, uh, is start a blog and commit to it as often as you can. And because I was recently laid off... I had the advantage of time, mm -hmm. and so I could commit. So for two years, I blogged Monday to Friday. I put a blog post up every weekday, and I did that for two and a half years. There must have been so many days when you're like, what am I going to write about? Do you have any specific posts that you really regret? Oh, yeah. Oh, so many. Like, <laughs> like 2010? Actually, 2008 to like... 2012, there were just some spotty stuff. Um, but I keep it all up. I keep all of it up because I think that it's important for people to know that growth happens, that it's, there's a steep learning curve, and that when you start writing, like, not only are you, you might be bad at it, but also you, you, you are probably a worse person. And I look back at some of those posts and I'm like, oh, oh, this is, this is, not a, this is not a good look for me, but it's there, yeah. And I mean, I'm still, it's still an iterative process. Like, I'm a sapling. Like, let's not get any impression that I'm, I'm bigger and greater and more evolved than I am, but I'm working on it. Geraldine DeRoyter, everyone. Check out her book, The Everywhereist. Hey, it's Luke. Don't go anywhere because coming up, we have comedian Matteo Lane. You know, actually, uh, if you're a pharmacist, you might want to sit this next one out. Okay, the world's fakest job, pharmacists. Why are you wearing a lab coat? There is no science happening back there. Okay, the rest of you, though, definitely stick around because it is hilarious. That's coming up here on Livewire from PRI. We are at the Triple Door in Seattle this week, and we asked the crowd, because the theme that we picked was going rogue, uh, we, we asked the crowd here, 
uh, to tell us about a time that they had to go rogue. And Elena Passarello has has been tabulating those returns, and uh, and you've got some of them for us yep. right now. Chris and Eileen, they became atheists immediately following their Catholic wedding. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like somebody wanted their parents to pay for it. <laughs> That's actually pretty clever. <laughs> this is one from Jeff. Uh, Jeff says, I beat a rat to death with my yoga mat <laughs> on the way to class. <laughs> Namaste, Jeff. Namaste. Yeah. Like, that is, a, that is a tremendous amount of violence from an otherwise peaceful device. I didn't know that. I mean, what kind of a yoga mat is this? Is it, like, double reinforced? Like... To really strike a blow. I feel like my yoga mat would not kill any sizable vermin. Wow. Okay. Here's one from Julie. I drove the getaway car for my daughter when she had to break into somebody's house and steal back her ID. That's rogue Julie. (laughs) I can't decide if that's good parenting or not. (laughs) Like, there's so much more to that story. Do you have one more, Elena? Oh, yeah. Here's one from Chris. Chris went rogue working at McDonald's in 1983. We all switched uniforms with Burger King across the street. (laughs) The late night weekend crowd was completely bamboozled. That is so great. Oh my God. Well done. Our comedian this hour actually started his career in oil painting and opera in Italy before going rogue and getting into comedy. You may have seen him on the various late night TV shows or on HBO's Crashing. We are so excited to have him here in Seattle with us. Please welcome the hilarious Matteo Lane to Livewire. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much. I'm obviously gay. I, um... Is anyone else here gay, or am I the only one? Work. Hey, girl. And, uh, hey, girls, what's up? I love lesbians. Give it up for lesbians. They are the only reason gays have rights. They're the best. I always get stressed out at Pride, because Pride posters are always, like, steroids and jock straps and drag queens. I'm like, that is fine. But also, we should have, like, a poster of two middle-aged lesbians paying their mortgage on time. <laughs> it could be great. So, all right, Seattle. (laughs) I mean, you guys really take Starbucks seriously. Uh, I I went to Starbucks once. They asked for my name to put it on the back of the cup. I was like, Mateo. She turned around. She made my drink. She came back. It said potato. (laughs) Here's the thing. When you hear potato, you stop writing on the cup. That's when you say, I'm sorry, I heard potato. Wow. What is your name? What barista is like, ah, the fifth potato today. Baristas, you're not making coffee in Rome, okay? You're just an employee at Starbucks. I... I've never walked in like, buongiorno, Matteo, cosa vorresti bere oggi? Ah, ma cappuccino, ma aspetta, Francesco! You know. 
One time I went into Starbucks, I was wearing fake, gla fake glasses. They had no lenses in them, but I was feeling myself. And uh, I walked in, I went up to the employee at Starbucks, and I was like, hi, you know, I'll have a, like a shot of a espresso. And she didn't even type, she just looked at me and she goes, yeah, your glasses don't have any lenses in them. Okay, like, what was I gonna say? Oh my God, you're right, I thought this was a Sabaro. Like, then her gay coworker wearing real glasses overheard the conversation. And he, that's another thing too, at Starbucks, I have no idea why, there is always like one, there's minimum one gay working. It's like a requirement, the minimum one gay working. And if one gay is working, like, you know, things get done. If there's more than one gay, nothing gets done. <laughs> one gay is always manning a sinking ship. He's always like, Sue, hurry up, let's go, my muffins, what do you want? You're like, <laughs> Two gays is like, ah, oh, what does she want? So, <laughs> so, he sees that I'm wearing fake glasses, he's wearing real glasses, and just like, like slithers into the conversation and just plays the biggest victim. He's like, I find it interesting that those who don't need glasses choose to wear them when we who need them have no choice. <laughs> Okay, Jafar, uh... And I just wanted my coffee. I was like, yeah, can we speed this along? And they doubled down. They're like, well, why are you wearing those glasses? So I said what I thought was funny. I was like, your job's as real as these glasses. And they got... Oh, they... Oh, am I wrong? It's a fake job. You go boo yourself. It, it, there are so many fake... Okay, the world's fakest job, pharmacists. Why are you wearing a lab coat? There is no science happening back there. <laughs> there is no chemistry. You're not in Jurassic Park. You're not creating new dinosaurs. You're in the lowest form of drag. Yes. I, and so much attitude. Also, like, you know, one time I was in Ohio and this guy stands up and he's like, I went to six years of pharmacy school. I'm like, what did you do for six years in pharmacy school? Did you just put on a lab coat and your teacher's like, all right, everyone. How many pills do you see? So... <laughs> I live in New York now, uh, can you tell? Uh, full of rage, and thing is, I've always wanted to be a comedian, this is my dream, and, well, that's not true, my dream is to be Mariah Carey, but here we are, and I met her, by the way, three months ago, I met her in an elevator, and she was well-lit and nervous. Okay, so, but, when I moved to New York, and I started doing comedy, you know, you get an agent, you get a manager, and they start to convince you that you have to do other lines of work. Like, the one thing they're always saying is, well, you've got to become an actor, and that's what comedians do, and you've got to be like Seinfeld and get in there! And it's like, I don't know if I want to be an actor, but, you know, I'm a team player, so I'm going out in all these auditions, and I'm just bombing them because I have gay voice. Like, in my head, I sound like, yeah, but... Oh, I hear myself all the time, like, am I Julia Childs? Just like, bonjour, girls! Like, I am fully Mrs. Garrett, but... And, and it's fine. I like having gay voice. It is fine, all right? There's a spectrum of gay voice, all right? My older brother's also gay, so my dad's real proud. And... My dad calls us his second Vietnam, but... Uh, wakes up in the middle of the night like, another one! But... I, 
I, you know, my voice is gay, but it's somewhere in the middle. My brother's voice is like, hello. And then my friend Jesse, he's the kind of gay, he's completely bald, but halfway through a conversation, he'll wipe away hair. It's not there. Uh, so, but I'm going on these auditions, and it's really hard because, you know, I really, I can't audition. Like, I went on this one audition, and the character description was literally, Zach, 19, football player. Well, Zach's going to have a secret to share with everyone. When do we huddle? You know, it's like, I don't know what to do. This is all I got. And if you're gonna be out and you're gonna be gay, the only roles that you can audition for are literally like gay best friend or robot in space. That's it. Every robot in every movie has been gay. Just think about it first. First of all, the gayest one is C3PO. That's without saying. I mean, that, and he, I know he never came out of the closet, but he did just get gayer in each Star Wars movie. Like, the first movie was very subtle. He was just like, oh my. But then, like, by Return of the Jedi, at one point, he literally goes, oh, dear Lord. I'm like. <laughs> and no one mentions that R2-D2 is a lesbian. She's a full-blown lesbian. She's smart. People need her. She came with a tool belt. She is a lesbian. <laughs> yes. Yes. When the Millennium Falcon's broken down, they're not calling 3PO. They're like, R2, get in here. 3PO just acts like me in any high school situation, like, oh my. All right, thank you so much. Mateo Lane. What a fun audience. <laughs> so nice. I love it. I, I would like to apologize to the 30 to 40 different people groups that Matteo offended. <laughs> uh, your resume is kind of insane to me. It's like you, you studied opera. Uh, you did oil painting. Do you speak five languages? <laughs> yes. Guys, I'm so cultured. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. Is it, it really the thing they say where, like, by the time you get to language number five, your brain can actually get through the information easier? I think so. I also have something called synesthesia. Sure. So, uh, do you know you what that is? Yeah, you assign colors to things. Yeah, your brain has like, uh, like unprovoked association with, people have it different ways, but I, mine is color. So every letter and number have color to it in words and music. So when what I was- What color is number seven? Number seven is like, a, like purple, but almost like a dark purple. Eight is like a dark blue, but seven would be more purple, I guess. What about? 11. 11 is like a grayish white. On the right side, it's brown. How about the letter Q? It's white. <laughs> so did the synesthesia help you remember things? Because it seems like it's so specific and so vivid. Um, well, languages for sure. Because at least the romance languages, I see the same color in certain phrases. So I know what it means. And definitely music, like learning music. And when I was a painter, color theory was easy. I was a storyboard artist for TV commercials and fashion ads for years. Really? Yeah, I would draw like commercials for Lexus and 7-Up and Honest Tea. Lots of, a lot of fashion, because I can draw, if you can draw, in particular a woman that's realistic looking and quickly, you get work. Uh, how do you go from, from opera and uh, oil painting and doing storyboards to comedy? When did you figure out that? Desperation. Uh, no, I was in Chicago drawing all day, and then I was like, I'm going to be a singer. And so I joined this cabaret group, this horrible cabaret group. But we would perform in gay strip clubs all around Chicago every weekend. So every weekend, I was like, I'm performing. 
morning. And it was like at 4 a.m. in between a stripper and a drag queen. And I would sing like Mariah Carey or Streisand. They let me choose my own music. So I was like, you got it. I did that for like two years. And then I was, my best friend was dating a comedian. And I, was, I always wanted to do stand-up way later in life, after I saw Joan Rivers. I was like 22. Because the comedy is not something for like... You realize you said way later in life and then 22. <laughs> Well, let me explain why, because, and not to get too serious, but if you're, like, being gay or queer, there's not, like, our comedians were, like, Kathy Griffin, Margaret Cho, there's no gay men who are super famous doing comedy. So our perspective isn't out there. Like, a lot of comics who are straight were comic fans as kids because they're watching people they aspire to be because they relate to what they're saying. So Carlin and Pryor and all these, but those people weren't speaking to me. So comedy to me wasn't... Necessary. I mean, I liked it, but it wasn't anything that was, I don't know, I didn't see it as like, oh, I don't get the big deal. Then I saw Joan Rivers, literally as a, as a young adult, and it changed my life. I was like, this woman is speaking to me. And I know a 78-year-old Jewish woman bitching about children shouldn't be like, I mean, that, I, but it, it spoke to me. And speaks to many gay men. So, you know, that's what got me interested in comedy, because I was like, oh, now I get it. I understand what it's like when you have someone speaking to you. Mateo Lane, everybody. All right, uh, Mateo. uh, Yeah. (laughs) uh, You, along with being a comedian, as we've already talked about, you're also a classically trained opera singer. Correct. We have heard that you have a range of six octaves. Yeah. Okay, well, along with your six octave range and all of your other amazing knowledge, we wanted to try to test your expertise on opera. Okay. Okay? This is a little segment we call Let's Get Quizzical. (laughs) Okay. Let's get quizzical. All right, here's how this is going to work, Matteo. Operas are, let's be honest, they're just about the caddy drama, right? I mean, yes. that's why soap operas are called soap operas. Yeah. So we're going to give you a plot point, and okay. we want you to tell us if it is from a real opera okay. or from, like, All My Children. <laughs> this is a quiz that we're calling Soap or Opera. Alternative title, Soap Opera or Nope, Opera. Okay. <laughs> a lot of ways to slice this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elena, can you keep score... Sure. Extra points, Mateo, if you're feeling up for it, if you can sing any of the answers. Okay. It's not necessary, but if you just want to... All right. Yes. Uh, Question number one. In the the climactic moments of this story, a hero is sentenced to die by being buried alive. As he is sealed into his tomb, he finds his love, who he thought was already dead. That love is there as well in the tomb. They commit to die together. Is this a soap opera or an opera? Soap opera. (laughs) You are 100% wrong. It is an opera. This is the end <laughs> of Aida by Verdi. Oh, it is Aida, Aida. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, in your defense, there are many buried alive instances from various soap operas, including Days of Our Lives, All My Kids, and Passions. What's Passions? Uh, passions. If you know about Passions, you know about Passions. It was this passions. like late. Uh, 90s, early 2000s. It was made for hungover college kids. Like, they let some very drug-induced people make a soap opera. (laughs) All right, question number two. Okay. 
In this dramatic tale, the heroine is demonically possessed after being drugged, then saved through an exorcism by the man she loves. Is this a soap or soap opera? A soap opera. It is a soap opera. Okay. You're absolutely right. It I don't is remember from, exorcism and opera. It's from a, a, an especially insane 90s period of Days of Our Lives. The heroine, we have some knowing, I hear some knowing response out there in the audience. Days of, we've got Days of Our Lives fans here with us. That is an interesting, I like you're splitting your time between public radio. And Days of Our Lives. Dr. Marlena Edwards, who became possessed, levitated, and then was saved when her husband remembered that he had once been ordained as a priest. What? <laughs> yep. Can you imagine being on that writing job? Like, yeah. well, let's see if this flies. <laughs> and the answer is, yes, it the does. The answer is yes. They're like, we're desperate, more. <laughs> I used to watch a soap opera in Italy that all took place in a mall. Chi è quella donna? Ma non c'è donna. Ma certo che c'è donna. And it's just so over the top. I assume that's Italian for, can we go to Orange Julius? <laughs> that's just them ordering coffee. They're so dramatic. <laughs> Um, all right, here's another one. Uh, in this story, the hero is saved from an unwanted marriage by a birthmark that reveals his almost wife is, in fact, his real mother. Is it an opera? I'm not endorsing it as a concept. It's something that's in either a soap opera Men or an opera. Men just come and arrest you, and it's like, <laughs> oh, I think that's an opera. You're absolutely right, Matteo Lane. It is an opera. It is from the marriage of Figaro. Give him some points, Passarello. What range is that? Which, which octave is that? <laughs> what octave? I was probably like a C4. I don't know. Okay. okay. All right, final question, Matteo. Okay. In this, in this epic saga, an evil billionaire attempts to take over a town and kick out its inhabitants, uh, is fought back by a dedicated battalion of citizens. Is this... Uh, an opera or a soap opera? An opera? Trick question. It's the real soap opera that is Jeff Bezos trying to build an Amazon headquarters oh, okay. in New York. In Queens. It's ripped from the headlines of real life. <laughs> How did Matteo do, Elena? He got the highest score in the history of me keeping score. <laughs> Beautiful. Matteo Lane, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines offers one more taste of summer with nonstop flights from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Aloha, Alaska. More at alaskaair.com. We are here at the Triple Door in Seattle, Washington this week. One of the uh, really fun parts of getting to do Livewire uh, on the road, outside of our typical home environs of Portland, is that we get to meet lots of interesting locals, and we like to have folks on the show from wherever we're at who are doing cool or surprising stuff. We call the segment New Fascinating Friend. We're going to meet one right now. Please welcome McKinney Howell to Livewire. McKinney, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, you uh, are the owner and uh, head chef at Plum Bistro. I am. Here in Seattle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Few people know about it. 
Yeah, it's very popular. It's not just the restaurant. You have catering and a food truck, and you do all kinds of stuff, right? Yes. And all of it is vegan. All of it is plant-based, vegan, yes. Um, I understand you were raised vegan, though. I was. My parents went vegan um, when my brother was born, so they have been vegan for 40 years. And so they raised us completely vegan. What was that like as a kid? Oh, it was weird. It was awful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, kids, it's hard enough being a kid, it's and there's enough, enough reason for no. people to give you crap, and then you throw in the, like, I'm not eating any animal products oh, thing. Oh, no, like, we were Rastafarian, we were vegan, we were homeschooled. It was... It's a real Whoa. triple threat. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Your parents are really doing the work for the bullies they, at that they point. They did. They did. We, I'm so good now. I'm like, what, what you got? Did you... Uh, I, I, somebody told me that you were a denim designer in New York City. I was. I lived in New York for almost 10 years. So my degree is actually in uh, design. And I design men's clothes, denim, wovens, knits, things like that. I worked for Rockaware. I worked for FUBU. How did... Like, you, you come back to Seattle and, like, did you know how to cook all of this stuff? I didn't. But my parents were really... They're awesomely vanguard people. And my mom started our company in 1972. So we're actually... Um, over 40-some-year-old family business. Oh, wow. Not only homeschooled us, she made us work, too, at, like, 13. And I think there are labor laws against that. But, you know, it's all in the past now. So (laughs) we grew up working in the family business. And she had the first tofu sandwich in all of the health food stores in Seattle. Yes, yay for tofu. Um, And she, she taught us how to run a business. So when I came back... I was going to San Francisco to work for Levi's, and my mom was like, just help me like, for six months and just like, do this. I want to do this little cafe. It's on Capitol Hill. I just need your help for six months. It's been 14 years. Yeah, that's what happens when you help out family, basically stuck. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed about, about Plum Bistro and about a lot of the stuff you make is that it's sort of it's vegan food or it doesn't use animal products, but it's for, it seems like it's for people who would not maybe identify as vegans. In other words, it seems like it's kind of a way of letting other people know that there's a lot of food you can eat that doesn't use animal products that's still pretty good to eat. Are you trying to kind of like spread the gospel a little bit? Well, I'm kind of trying to be myself. You know, since I grew up, since I've been vegan for so long, like you move past the quinoa bowls and the tofu and the tempeh, and you're like, although those things are great, you know, you have to find a way to exist in the, the vegan space. And I've never had a successful relationship with anyone that wasn't vegan, so they always thought I was a little strange. So I was like, well, maybe I should just make things that you would eat too. So then that whole spark the whole, like, let's be inclusive with it. <laughs> So this was basically so you could have successful dating relationships? Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you got that part. This yes. is a really good outcome from that. I, I think so, too. None of those people ever, you know, they, none of them lasted. But I think <laughs> that it was a great study on my part, and I, I have a successful outcome. Um, what, what is the sort of reaction that you get from people? I know one of the things on the menu at your restaurant, is it called the Dad Burger? Or? No, it's called my... Okay, so... It was inspired by the dad or the guy that gets drug in because daughter, wife, girlfriend, somebody is vegan. He's like, do you have an old-fashioned? Do you have a burger? It's called My American Guy. Okay. And it speaks directly to the dad who's like, she's going through a thing. One time we had this dad. He brought his 15-year-old daughter and 14 of her 15-year-old friends from... I don't know, one of the islands, because she was vegan and she was not eating anything with a face, and she wanted to eat at Plum Bistro, and he was like, I, she's my ki- I love her, so we're here, and I need to eat too. And so we would always have those dads, and so yeah, the American guy is, he's that guy. He's the guy that's like, I'm trying. I'm not vegan, but I'll try. 
uh, we're talking to McKinney Howell here on Livewire. She's our fascinating friend this week. Why do you think that it, uh, in, to some degree, can even enrage people when they hear about someone eating vegetarian or eating vegan? Like, the, the response from people is weirdly kind of strong for something that does not directly impact them if they don't want it to. See, yeah, I know. So vegans are crazy, and I am a vegan, so I feel I can say that. But I think that there's also like a group of people or, or segment that feels like you're trying to take something from them. Food is like religion. You can't just go up and snatch somebody's chicken, you know, just like you just can't go up and like snatch their belief. So you have to make it inclusive and you have to make it about them and you have to make them more interested in what you're doing versus making it about your rage against eating anything with a face. Like that's never my approach. It's just like, hey, I like this. You might like this too. So you should try it. Do you feel like... Um that's the direction that we're starting to go more and more sort of, I don't know, culturally? Like, do you feel like in the future there's going to be more veganism, more vegetarianism? Is this where we're really going? I definitely think plant-based is trending, and I think that um, people are becoming more aware of how it affects them personally. It's not about whether McKinney's a vegan. It's, you know, whenever a documentary comes out, like What the Health, you know, you start to realize what overconsumption of animals does to your body. And so people are starting to open up and think about ways that they can be more inclusive in their diet and what they eat. I don't personally think everyone is ever going to be completely vegan, but I do think people are starting to realize the environmental impacts, the health impacts, and we just can't keep consuming as much meat as we do. So everyone wants to stay on the planet. So in order to do that, maybe like eat one less steak per day or I don't know. That seems like a, a reasonable request. From McKinney Howell, our new fascinating friend right here on Livewire. This is Livewire from PRI, and we will be back in just a moment. Hey, we want to say a special thanks this episode to Paul Weil of Eugene, Oregon, and Christine Piggott of Portland, Oregon. Paul and Christine are part of the Live Wire member community and they generously support us with a donation each month. We are so thankful for their support because it is how we are able to actually do this show. So a huge thanks to Paul and Christine. This is Live Wire. We are coming to you from the Triple Door in Seattle this week. All right, I am super-duper excited about our musical guest this week. I have been obsessively listening to their latest album, Rhododendron. It is so good, and I know you're going to love them, too. Please welcome Valley Maker to Livewire. Hello. Hey there. Thanks Hi. for having us. Thanks for being here. So you yeah. moved up from South Carolina? Yeah, totally. I lived there for pretty much all my life until coming here. Yeah, yeah. Moved, moved here five years ago. So, yeah. How, how, why did you move to Seattle? Um, I moved here to start a PhD in human geography, actually. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Are you still doing that? I am, yeah. Slowly but surely, you know. So do you, st to, do you still have to write your dissertation? I do, yeah. I'm scary close to being done, but then kind of music stuff came together. Yeah, are we keeping you from your dissertation right now? Yeah, I now? should really get out of here 
by nine, probably. To just kidding. What um, is the subject of your dissertation? So I I did research in the European Union on the migration crisis and specifically kind of how humanitarian organizations are uh, limited, like try to help migrants, but are dependent on state governments who often want to see migrants get out. So uh, the kind of possibilities and limitations of being a humanitarian around the migration crisis. So yeah, now I just need to write it up, but I'm touring a lot and uh, yeah, got to sort out my life maybe. But. I, so if music continues to go the way it's been going for you and that ends up being kind of your, your whole thing, are you just going to be this like extremely like a smart musician when it comes to like ethnic migration in Europe? Yeah, probably just have a lecture portion of every show. It's <laughs> the PowerPoint slide. Yeah. You know, always ready. Well what song are we gonna what song are we gonna hear? We're gonna play a song called Beautiful Birds Flying. Alright, this is Valley Maker on Livewire. Like I would an engine Walking through the night Like I've gone missing Missing from the place I live Missing from my brain I guess Looking for some good In another's hand Looking for a life I could earn Understand there's violence in the ways I left Violence in the way again Even then you come in nightly Even in the dream I spun Even in the summer sun I could not run Glistening or faded I'm sitting where it all be I gave up on a promised land But you were my friend Aging now I feel it It's always slipping through my hands It wasn't what I thought back then When beautiful birds were flying Beautiful birds were flying Circles in the sky I'm finding My way Screen. There's violence in the ways I live 
that can sell my mind chasing So I'm turning on the light when I let you in I open up my mind with a new question now How could you possibly be? Now what could you possibly need? Nothing now I face it There's nothing on the other side I want to live inside your life With violence on my only mind And beautiful birds were flying Beautiful birds were flying Circles in the sky I'm finding my way with them That is Valley Maker right here on Livewire. That is going to do it for our show. Thank you so much to our guests this week Geraldine DeReuter, McKinney Howell, Mateo Lane, and Valley Maker. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Special thanks this episode to our media sponsor, KUOW in Seattle. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Ezra Rose, and Pony. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by Craig Montgomery. Our on-air mix by Corey Schreppel. Thanks to Schreffer Harvey. Thanks also this week to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we got to thank members Lyle and Eileen Haddon of Anderson Island, Washington for their support. Thanks, Lyle and Eileen. For more information about our show, how you can listen to our podcast, or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. For Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire team, I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the LiveWire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are LiveWire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about LiveWire. And thank you.